The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. There is no silver bullet quick solution to the bigger systemic challenge or that there are existential change of how people are thinking about office space. That was Scott Reschler, the head of real estate company RxR on the state of office properties. Welcome back to The Exchange, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views that explores the big questions on the minds of business leaders and governments. I'm Jennifer Saba, coming to you from New York. Working from home is proving to be a hard habit to kick. Office occupancy rates are around half of what they were pre-pandemic in the United States, with some cities like New York doing worse than the national average. In New York City, the vacancy rate for workspaces has hit over 20%. I zoomed in with Scott Reschler, the CEO and chair of RxR, a firm that invests, operates, and develops commercial real estate with a gross asset value of over 20 billion. Scott serves on the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and was also the vice chair of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. He has been warning of the coming apocalypse in commercial real estate, which makes him well-suited to strike up a conversation about the potential onslaught of zombie office buildings. Scott, welcome to the program. I am going to set the scene here, and it's not pretty. In the last week, I've gotten various reports that have landed in my inbox about Manhattan office availability climbing to record highs, Um, Globally, the picture is pretty bleak. McKinsey just released a study that remote work habits threatens to wipe some $800 from value in office real estate in just nine cities around the world. So if I were in commercial real estate and if I were a landlord, I would be absolutely terrified. So how are you feeling? (laughs) Well, that was a great opening, Jen. Great to be here with you. And thanks for the uh, setting the stage so so well for me. Listen, I think I'm a, I'm a realist, as, as, as you know, as you know, I've been uh, fairly vocal about some of the challenges that uh, we face in the commercial real estate space, um, and um, and I think that the it's 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 a you know been a, a slow moving process uh, that's now starting to transpire, but I'm not sure there's a real clarity as to what the end game is yet, right? There's uh, there's the, the McKinsey report and some of these other reports that have been out there, I think you know help set the framework. Um, but it, this is really fluid. Like even the McKinsey report is an example. The surveys they did, which I think about 12,000 surveys, so it was fairly comprehensive, were done yeah. eight months ago. And even in the last eight months, the change in the macroeconomic environment and the relationship between the the employer and employee in terms of coming back to the workplace has has shifted more into the into the employer having leverage over the employee. Eight months ago, the labor market was so tight that uh, people who wanted to work remotely, it was hard for an employer to say, no, we want you in the office. You're seeing more and more firms say, come back to the office. That all being said, I I do concur with this conclusion that hybrid work is here to stay, whether that's three days a week or four days a week is where it is, and that we need to reimagine buildings, we need to reimagine our, our city centers to be more live work play shop environments that are not just commercial office buildings because that's not going to uh, function and these are things frankly that we begin we were seeing before the pandemic that the pandemic accelerated uh, along the way a, it's a process of what's when it's taking hold is not going to be without levels of pain and i think as an owner you need to be very thoughtful about which buildings are going to be successful and which markets are going to be successful coming out on the other side of what I call sort of crossing this chasm from mm-hmm. this period to the new normal and which ones won't and trying to the ones that will be invest appropriately the ones that won't be 
don't allocate additional capital to and uh, you know be realistic about it and then i'll say the other piece is there's uh, there's always sort of chaos before clarity and in those moments that's those are the moments where it's the best time to be an investor and so you know we, we were active investors in 09 where there was real concern about ever the future of new york or we were active investors after 9-11 in new york city and what's the future of new york and so we, we, you know in moments like this we also like to lean in and capitalize on the opportunities that the uncertainty uh, creates. So I, I think this, that's a good point, and I'd like to kind of you know follow up with what you were just talking about. So every real estate recession, you know, is different in its own way. And I was hoping you can kind of take us through how this downturn, particularly for office real estate and commercial real estate. How is that different from what happened in 2008 in the Great Recession when, you know, homeowners were underwater, which seemed like, you know, it was a cataclysmic event. But do you, like, how is it going to play out, I guess, with office going forward? Yeah. So, it, you know, it's interesting. The I've, I've subscribed to a view that this is not so much like 08, 09, and frankly, more of what the real estate downturn and the economic downturn that we went through in the late 80s, early 90s, and the savings and loan crisis. And mm-hmm. the reason being is in 08, 09, first it was, it was a, a downturn that was driven by over leverage and speculation and these uh, using financial instruments that were quirky that people didn't really understand. And the crisis was, while, while it hit the country as a whole, a lot of the challenges when were in, 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 in the systemic sense were in institutions, large institutions. And the Federal Reserve was able to, and, and, and Treasury, to inject capital into the economy at free, at, at really low rates, which then helped lift boats and and sort of you know lubricate a, uh, a an ability for things to correct and elevate prices and values. This is is much more of um, an area where we're going through, I think, a, a triple whammy at the same time, right? We have the existential change in how people work, right, which is impacting the future demand of office space and the impact on cities. We have the change in interest rates, which isn't a short-term change. It's really a paradigm shift after almost two decades of low to zero interest rates now returning to a more normalized interest rate environment. And so that impacts values, that impacts capital structures that were put in place over the last 15 years not irresponsible in terms of lenders, not irresponsible in terms of borrowers, but the reality is those capital structures don't work in, in the current interest rate environment as they did in, in the past. And then the third piece of this is we have a, a credit crunch going on right now. And um, I think we're, you know, there, I don't think there's been enough discussion about it, but being in the market right now, there is a real drought of commercial real estate lending capability and capacity. And, you know, when I speak to banks around the country, regional banks, big banks, the CMBS markets, insurance companies, you know, the mandate coming down to them is reduce your commercial real estate exposure. And so that so if they look at their their loans and they have to reduce them, if they can't refinance them themselves or transaction values aren't there to sell today, transaction activity rather is not there for them to sell, then they're not lending because they don't want to add to that book. So you have all these things happening at the same time. Why I say it's going to be more like the early 90s was this paradigm shift of interest rates really parallels what happened in the early 90s, which was a paradigm shift on taxes, right? There was a a tax regime in place in the 80s 
that encourage people to buy real estate and other assets for tax benefits. So and in, 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 uh, inflated, artificially inflated real estate values. And then in 86, the tax law changed. And all of a sudden, anything that was bought under that valuation that was driven in one tax regime versus the other didn't make sense anymore. And it took you know, a good three to five years to work its way through the system because values had to get reset, capital structures, there was a, a, a deleveraging and a re-equitization that needed to happen in that situation. And it hit the whole country much more broadly than 08 and 09, which was much more concentrated in the big financial institutions. This instance, you know, in the commercial real estate space, the interest rate regime, right, change has been the new paradigm shift. And that's going to reduce values. And it's going to hit the country because it's going to be going through a lot of the regional banks where they're, you know, they're right now there's, you know, over 4,000 regional banks and they have about 70% of that commercial real estate exposure. And as they have to deal with that, they're going to slow down their lending and, and they're going to have their own levels of crises. And this will take time as each loan matures, you know, that will be have to reset that value at that time and workouts will have to happen. And, you know, on, on the banking space, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a thousand less regional banks two years from now than there are today, just like we saw in the early 90s when we lost about a thousand banks at that time. I want to kind of go back to what you were saying about in the 90s, though, because and you sort of touched upon this a little bit ago, but it's it's not just a financial problem, right? It's an actual change of habit and how people work. So and we haven't seen that before. So you might be able to financially kind of tinker around the margins to kind of help landlords, you know, make it through this period. But at the end of the day, you still need to fill those buildings up, right? Like, how do you think about that? And how do you kind of address just the change of of habits and how people go to work every day? Right. And, 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 you know, there is a parallel to this, right? The parallel is what happened with e-commerce and retail, right? When the e-commerce world took off and Amazon and people began to shop online, you know, you, you saw there was a period where malls became to be a place. Why would I go to a mall, right? I'd, I'd rather just go buy something online. And there was, you know, the, the same sort of existential question is, is there ever going to be malls? And is there ever values for malls? And they're going to ever have foot traffic again and interest by tenants. And over time, what happened was certain malls, the, the ones that were able to create an experience that were engaging, that was an outing, began to flourish. And the ones that weren't became obsolete. And that's, I think, that distinction between, you know, the, the types of office buildings that will be places that are destinations that people want to go to work to uh, be around uh, their, you know, they have a, a community of their colleagues, the other people in the building, the neighborhood, the energy, the easy um, access to get to because it's close to public transportation, they'll do well the buildings that don't have that those type of characteristics will become obsolete the transition could be a three to five year period while the uh, marketplace makes the the distinction between which of those buildings are going to be successful and which ones aren't going to be successful which is going to result in a reduction of potential office supply I, i want to be clear you know we're working right now at rxr on two million square feet of leases right so we're not in a situation where people aren't transacting today. Clearly, the economics of those leases aren't as good as they were, you know, pre-pandemic. But these are companies that are making long-term commitments to high-quality buildings 
and you know and bringing their people back to the workplace investing in, in their own amenities more amenities that we're putting into the into the buildings themselves and so it's happening in that regard so i mean it, it's an interesting parallel that you you talk about malls because you know in my reporting on the subject you know a lot of people are like okay it's not just any it's not just all office buildings don't like lump them all together that you know you have the quote unquote, class A or trophy assets and office. And then you have everything else, like, you know, things that maybe were built in the 90s, as you say, and earlier. So how many buildings, let's just use New York City, how many buildings are class A or trophy assets? Do, do you have like an estimation of that? Yeah, I don't, but I, would, I mean, I'll frame it a different way. I think the way to think about this is it's not even, a, it's not broken into two categories. I would say it's like a trifurcation Right, you have the brand new buildings that that are built, you know, by Grand Central or or Hudson Yards. They're in a class of their own right now, where they're still getting rents that are record rents that New York's never seen—150, 200 dollars a square foot or beyond. Then you have on the other side of that ex- uh, extreme, you have those Class B, more commodity-like ops with buildings, which are going to be the obsolete ones. And I think those are pretty clear; those defined segments. In between the, that is the Class A space, and that is where I think there's a gradation of different quality within that Class A, which is the biggest bulk of, of activity, of which of those buildings will be competitive and which ones won't be competitive in the in this uh, on the other side of this chasm, right? And so, um, but, but you know, on the, the Class B, the obsolete ones, you know, those buildings, I think pretty much people can identify. I don't have a number for you for what that is, but the challenge is to really get to a point where you think about how do you deal with those buildings, right? Because what's going to happen, and this is where this becomes more of a, a, a civic issue than just a economic issue to the owners, is that if these buildings become vacant and just sit vacant, you have zombie buildings. And yeah. until you get through a process of negotiating with lenders, figuring out how to repurpose it, uh, capitulating on what the new value needs to be, which in many cases is like land value, right? It's not, there's really no value to the real estate itself. It's the land value to build something new. Um, those buildings become a liability to the community. They weigh down the community. Um, you see crime tends to loitering around there. You know, they don't throw off tax revenue. The streets have, you know, dark spots on them. So it, it's not what we want as a community. And so we're going to have to be intentional and proactive from a policy standpoint to try to accelerate the repurposing of those types of buildings. Yeah, I mean not not to to simplify this, but to go back to the to the great recession, and I think you've said this in the past before, in some ways that sounds like a very complicated fix. So it sounds like what what happened with the great Re- recession was a little more um it clear on what you could do, which was the Fed started lowering rates, right? And they right. they they flooded the the country with with money and so that's not going to happen right so not only is that not going to happen even if it does happen you have these trends that are kind of cycling through so it's basically it sounds like it's a much more complicated problem that may take longer to fix i mean like what is your kind of time frame on this because like once you have to get cities involved and you know changing codes and whatnot i mean you know what it's like in new york city that just seems like it would take forever yeah no and i and, and again you're 100 right right the, the, this is there is no silver bullet quick solution to the bigger systemic challenge or that you know or existential change of how people are thinking about office space and for cities 
I think in terms of timing, I think the the distinction between those class A buildings that pretenders want to be into and the ones that aren't those will happen over the next couple of years, right? I think the market itself will start working itself out. And then you'll be left with a pool of other buildings that are the ones that we were just talking about that need to be repurposed for an alternative use or you know, significantly upgraded. And that could be a multi-year challenge. I mean, that could be, you know, we could be living through this for the next five years or mm-hmm. longer, depending on, you know, the policies that are put in place to help accelerate it or how quickly lenders and uh, and borrowers are willing to capitulate to where really new pricing needs to be, right? I mean, I mean, we we bid on these buildings. There's a couple of them in the market right now of, uh, of buildings that, um, you know, were once our office buildings, but need to be repurposed. And, you know, the, the pricing that um, you're speaking about is significant losses. Forget the the borrower to the lenders, right? There's significant losses. And so, you know, how much loss are they willing to take to get these uh, buildings repriced to a point where someone either can tear them down or uh, invest money to convert them to uh, residential or multifamily, which is the obvious answer for a lot of these, if it can be done, um, because we have a shortage of housing uh, in in New York and around the country. So that part will be, you know, policy. If, If policy can help deal with the regulatory environment, so you have clarity as to what buildings have approvals to be converted to alternative uses, then that that's a big plus. And then, you know, if you have, it can have some tax incentives, um, that would also be a big plus to help accelerate that. And we saw that in Lower Manhattan, you know, after 9-11, and it worked that, you know, it transformed Lower Manhattan at a very fast pace, where a lot of the older office buildings were converted to multifamily, and then they became live, work, play, um, you know, uh, communities. Yeah, but what was interesting about that transition was a lot of those buildings that were converted into, you know, living spaces, they were really old buildings, right? They were kind of, they were lower, they, you know, it it wasn't 40 stories or 50 stories or however, you know, however big it is. They all had access to windows. Like, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about what you're saying. And it's like, there's, there's several steps that have to happen before you get to kind of that realization. And the first step is, you know, the landlord has to realize, or the lender, whoever owns the piece of property, right. that this thing is underwater. So right. are you seeing a lot of that recognition happening now? Like, to give me a gauge of where commercial real estate owners are in that process. Like, you know, the, the seven, what is it, seven stages of grief? <laughs> like, right. where are they, you know, in right. that stage? That, you know, I, I would say we're just starting to see um, a, a willingness for lenders to start taking the types of discounts that would be required to, um, to to actually get through this transformation. You know, to the extent it happens in scale, I don't. It's unclear to me if it's going to happen in scale, right? And how fast that will happen, right? And with the timing on that, but it is. It, it, people are becoming aware, and what you see in these types of situations is. You know, once a few of these deals are done and there's um, price discovery, it becomes a lot easier to to accelerate the process because, you know, if there's no comps of other deals that were done, then, you know, people can sort of pretend and extend, as they like to say, right? Yeah. They can wait it out. Yeah. But once all of a sudden, you know, a building's trading at, you know, 200 hours a foot or $150 a foot, and that's the price to you need to actually convert it to residential, 
then other you know institutions that have that property or those loans are going to realize okay it feels like this is where it's going and, and so we're bidding on some stuff right now and you know the gap is you know it is 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 uh, you know people are bidding double what we're bidding and people are bidding half of what we're bidding right so it's such a wide margin because there's no mm-hmm. price discovery as to where these things should trade uh as you as you go forward so i think I would my guess is over the next um, six months, we're going to see more of that activity and that will help start the process. And I think, you know, as I said, banks are being encouraged to just remove these loans from their books. Institutions are being encouraged to to sort of to sell because at this stage of the game, you know, they're looking at appraisals that came in very low. And so if you're a big institution, and you own, even own this property. You don't really want to keep it on your book when you don't really have that much value to it and it's going to require significant new capital to invest in stabilizing it so and there lies the opportunity right where if where people just want to exit and right now sort of paint all commercial real estate with the same brush which is really what's happening right now right it's not you know we've been talking about a distinct piece which is stuff that should trade at a discount right now lenders and institutional investors um, you know, they look at all office buildings as taboo. Don't come to an mm-hmm. investment committee. Don't come to a, a credit committee and tell me you want to finance an office building or buy an office building or invest in an office building. So if you're able to look through that noise and look specifically at which buildings will be successful, this is the window where you can actually buy, um, you know, buildings at big discounts. And we did this in 2009. We bought four and a half billion dollars of office buildings at a time that everyone had anxiety about the future of of New York office and and will ever come back and where those prices were and you know we sold uh, five years later we sold a 49% interest and took all of our capital out and still owned 51% right so you can these are good entry points if you have conviction as to what will be successful and are willing to be a contrarian investor so let's talk about the conversion um, because I, I find this topic really fascinating to me, and I I'm not convinced. So try and convince me that you're going to take a, a zombie building, or not you, but any landlord could take a, a zombie building. And I'm thinking again in New York City, and flip that into housing. What well, like it just seems super expensive. It seems um, you know you'd really have to gut the entire thing to make it appealing as a place to live, but maybe I'm wrong. What's your thought on that? Well, first, let me say, I agree with you. Um, and I don't, and I think it's worth saying, right. That in terms of when you think about the, the, the scale of the inventory, that's going to be obsolete. And the percentage of that, that is our, our candidates for this conversion is much smaller, right? It's not going to, that's not going to be the full solution, right? So it may mean knocking down buildings, right? I mean, we just bought a, a mall in white plains, that you know was a 1972 mall that sat vacant for 10 years, and we basically bought it at land cost, um, and got a lot of government incentives and tax incentives, and we're building that 480 units of multifamily, but we tore the whole thing down, right? So sometimes you just got to tear it down. So I don't, I don't want to, I, I don't want to dispute the part of your thesis, which is that we we can't put all our chips on the fact that we're going to start converting buildings. That being said, I mean, in Lower Manhattan, it had worked, and there are there were there were skyscrapers. I mean, my daughter lived in in one of them, and Nathan Berman, who's active today, was active back then doing this, where they, you know, they took you know glass, you know, financial district buildings and converted them into residential. 
and again, you got to buy them at the right price. You got to, you know, the, you, you change the type of infrastructure that was there for office space. You sometimes put atriums in them. So you got to be very creative uh, to do it, but it can be done. I think some buildings are harder. Like if you think about Third Avenue, right? Those buildings are older buildings that would fit into this sort of category of being competitively obsolete. And you can't really see where people want to be there. But they're big sort of wedding cake buildings, you know, on those bases of the buildings. Can you really convert that to residential? And that's because this floor plate's so large, you know, to your point, how how do you really create apartments out of it? So I think I think there's going to be some that work, some that don't work. We looked at our whole portfolio and said, OK, where are there opportunities where even doing mixed use, which I think is a compelling concept where you can have residential hotel office, you know, maybe some rental, maybe some for sale. And there are some of our buildings that we've looked at that are, uh, you know, I would even, you know, are high quality buildings in great locations that you can do that with and would be, could be very interesting down, down the road. You know, let's talk a little bit because you have, what is it, five times square, right? Which is like across the street from where Thomson Reuters is headquartered and you're renovating that building, right? So what what are you doing? What's your thesis on, I mean, getting people back into Midtown? Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's an example with Five Times Square, which is located between 41st and 42nd Street. You know, it has great subway access. So it's talking about, you know, what what do people type people type of buildings people want to be in? You know, they want access to transportation. Here, you have 12 subway lines in the building itself. Um, they want to have the energy of being in a place like New York. Um, they want to have good floor plates. We redid the lobby. We're taking two floors of this building and converting it to amenity space, putting a restaurant, a bar, a, you know, a, a grab and go food area, um, health and wellness, gym, um, meeting spaces, gathering spaces. So two whole floors of amenities uh, with David Rockwell, the architect has been working on that with us. Um, you know, and so that, so you'll have the ability within the building itself. If you don't want to exit the building, once you're there, if you just want to be in the building, you could stay in the building and that could be your whole ecosystem. If you want to go out and live New York and Times Square, you can. If you want to go out and go to Bryant Park, you're a block away from Bryant Park, um, and um, and and that's you know where that is. And that that that's you know a building that is an office building was you know that has good bones, good floor plates, good uh, you know uh, presence and signage. Uh, as you know, Roku took uh, um, about two hundred fifty thousand feet of space in the building, so I think that, that that's good. And we have good activity with other um, you know, media and tech companies for that building who also value the the signage opportunities, right? Because you have the, you know, in Times Square and the exposure there. So that that that's, you know, each of these buildings has to be, you know, thought of uh, in, 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 in sort of its own light in terms of where it is, its character, who's the audience that you're playing to and trying to lean into that. So let me ask you as a as a parting question here, and I'll leave it, you know, slightly more positive than when we started. I mean, so what, I mean, you seem very bullish on New York um, in general. Like, what do you think it's going to like? How, what is it going to look like in maybe five years? Like, tell me where where you think New York City is. Yeah. Listen, I'm I, I want to say I'm bullish on New York because I have uh, the first thing reason I'm bullish in New York is New York has proven to be a magnet for talent, right? And even in, in during the heat of the pandemic, when everyone was leaving, we bought $2 billion of multifamily in New York City, um, and, and they were 80% occupied. Today, they're 98% occupied. Rents are 15% higher. The whole city of, of, of multifamily is filled. So while we have this office building issue, 
New York is proven because of its, its its culture, its diversity, its energy, its restaurants, its theater, that people from around the world, the best and brightest want to be here, which means companies eventually want to be here. I think the challenge um, for New York is uh, we have to reimagine our, our CBDs, um, th- th- as we've been speaking about, right, to really create these mixed-use uh, central business districts uh, within uh, Manhattan itself. And, you know, that requires public policy. And you alluded to it earlier, you know, we we haven't had a great uh, track record of seeing, um, you know, public policy proactively react to change until crisis happens, right? And so what worries me is that we have to wait till the point where we're at crisis mode, where tax revenues are down and everything like that before we respond. But I do think eventually we'll get to that point where you'll start having these live work play communities and these buildings will start being adapted and more importantly i think new york will be more integrated into the region itself and that's an an, a key advantage that new york has right new york has this great connectivity to not just be a superstar city but a superstar region where you have the suburbs around it with a great talent pool around the suburbs which enables people who want to have a more affordable lifestyle but have connectivity back to new york to do that. And so, you know, when I think about New York, I don't think about just 8 million people that live there. I think about 20 million people that live in the region that are available for companies that want to locate in the New York metro area. And that's another advantage I think we will lean in. And if you look through history, you know, what we've seen in the past is there's been points where the New York suburban outer ring have flourished and the New York City has suffered. And there's been points where the city has thrived and the suburbs have suffered. I think in this this period, they're actually going to be much more in sync and and self-reinforcing in a positive way than we've had in the past. Well, that's great. As as someone who's sitting in Montclair, New Jersey. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. This was uh, very enlightening and I, I appreciate it. No, thank you, Jen. Appreciate it. That wraps up this episode of The Exchange. I want to give a shout out to Sharon Lamb and Thomas Shum, who produced this podcast. If you haven't done so already, please sign up on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you go for audio cravings. Also, check out our sister podcast, The Views Room. And of course, don't forget to read breakingviews.com. Thanks for tuning in and listening.